which part of the brain is typically involved in Marchifava bignami disease. It typically involves the corpus callosum and causes necrosis and demyelination. This is alcohol-related process and typically involves corpus callosum. Again, Marchifava bignami involves the corpus callosum and causes necrosis and demyelination. Location or overview of paragangliomas or glomus tumors. Most common glomus tumor paraganglioma is the carotid body tumor or glomus corticum. It typically splays the internal and external carotid arteries, meaning it separates them. Again, carotid body tumor, most common, and it splays the internal and external carotid bodies. Glomus vagale occurs at the same level as the carotid body tumor, but what it does is displaces both the internal carotid and the external carotid anterior medially. Glomus jugulotympanicum is glomus jugularia and has the potential of spreading into the middle ear. A glomus tympanicum is in the middle ear and on otoscope what they see is a vascular red retrotympanic mass and glomus jugularia is the last one typically present with pulsatile tinnitus and conductive hearing loss in a middle aged woman. What is aspergilloma? Basically a round fungus ball that forms within a long cavity. Typically the cavity is due to prior TB or sarcoid and the ball basically rolls around the cavity. And the way uh, you tell that it's aspergilloma or a fungus ball is you roll the patient and the ball would fall due to gravity so it will layer dependently. This is in contradistinction from aspergillosis or particularly invasive aspergillosis where it has invasiveness into the adjacent structure and it's not a ball within a cavity, rather it's necrosis of pulmonary parenchyma that forms the air sign around the fungus ball or around the invasive fungus. So aspergilloma, a fungus layer within an existing parenchymal or lung cavity. Invasive aspergillosis can have somewhat of a similar appearance, but really it's an invasive mass or necrotic mass with surrounding a crescent of air due to tissue infarction and necrosis. Now, most common symptom for aspergilloma is hemoptysis. Again, aspergilloma presents with hemoptysis and it changes position as the patient is rolled around. Neurofibromatosis type 2 or NF2. This is an autosomal dominant neurocutaneous disorder and it's completely different and unrelated from NF type 1. Now NF type 2 is caused by a defect on chromosome 22. This is easy to remember because it's type 2 related to chromosome 22. Uh, the mnemonic for neurofibromatosis type 2 is miss me. I like to add the number 2 to it. So miss me 2 and it reminds me that I'm talking about NF2 not NF1 and the mnemonic stands for miss multiple inherited schwannomas, me, two letters, M and E, the M stands for meningiomas, and the E stands for ependymomas, and the two in my mnemonic stands for neurofibromatosis type 2. So, miss me, two, multiple inherited schwannomas, meningiomas, and ependymomas, and this is due to defect on chromosome 22. Risk factors associated with RCC or renal cell carcinoma, smoking, 
acquired cystic kidney disease, so chronic kidney disease. Patients tend to develop cysts. Some of those cysts may become malignant. Von Hippel-Landau disease, Berthog-Dubé, and tuberous sclerosis. Again, smoking, acquired cystic kidney disease, Von Hippel-Landau, Berthog-Dubé, tuberous sclerosis, and maybe potentially sickle cell disease. Now, common, most common type of RCC is clear uh, cell RCC. And this is the common, most common, so we see it with most of the diseases, particularly von Hippolandu is associated with clear cell RCC. Berthog-Dubé is associated with the chromophobe type. And finally, uh, sickle cell is associated with the medullary type RCC. Again, most common type is clear cell. Risk factors for RCC in general is smoking, acquired cystic kidney disease, von Hippolandu associated with clear cell, Berthog-Dubé associated with the chromophobe type, and medullary RCC is seen in sickle cell patients. Just a, a quick description of enhancement pattern. So typically, clear cell RCC has enhancement and it enhances more than the renal cortex. All other types of RCC demonstrate hypoenhancement. Again, so clear cell carcinoma is the main or predominant type of RCC that enhances slightly more than the renal cortex. The rest of RCC cancer do not demonstrate enhancement. To review the location of paragangliomas or glomus tumors, obviously uh, another quick fact about these tumors Paragangliomas are hypervascular tumors. Again, they are hypervascular tumors, and on MRI, they're associated with the salt and pepper appearance. So the pepper refers to the flow voids created on T2 imaging because of uh, just MRI signal artifact. The blood intern is not being nulled, and so you get the, uh, the dark signal or signal loss in the blood that is flowing fast. So to summarize, carotid body tumor or glomus corticum is the most common paraganglioma. It displays the internal and external carotid artery. Since we're at the carotid, we'll talk about another tumor at that same level, glomus vagale, and it displaces both the internal and external carotid anteromedially. Glomus jugulotympanicum at the jugular space can invade into the middle ear. Glomus tympanicum is paraganglioma in the middle ear, typically reported in otoscope as a vascular red retrotympanic mass. And finally, glomus jugulare can present with pulsatile tinnitus and conductive hearing loss, typically in a middle-aged woman. Visceral angioedema or intestinal angioedema. This is a long segment of concentric thickening of bowel submucosa, so the mucosa of the bowel or the submucosa would be thickened, typically involves the jejunum. Now, there are three common etiologies for it. Most commonly, it's hereditary, sorry, not most commonly, just in general, hereditary 
deficiency of C1 inhibitor enzyme or acquired C1 inhibitor enzyme deficiency, which can be related to B-cell lymphoma or autoimmune disease. And finally, ACE inhibitor. So you'll typically see a patient who they'll mention they're on ACE inhibitor or they'll name the ACE inhibitor and say this patient has this CT scan and you'll see edema in the small bowel, particularly in the mid-bowel jejunum. And the diagnosis they want you to get at is visceral angioedema or intent intestinal angioedema. Again, intestinal angioedema present with concentric thickening of the bowel mucosa or submucosa, typically involves the jejunum, common etiologies, hereditary deficiency of C1 inhibitor enzyme acquired from autoimmune disease and B-cell lymphoma, and medication, the ACE inhibitor medications. Those are the medications that their last word in them is Prel, so Captoprel, traction apophysitis of the patellar ligament. This is oshgood schlatter disease. Again, traction apophysitis of the patellar ligament is oshgood schlatters disease. Whereas coronoid process, we have two coronoid processes in the body. Well, one is part of the mandible. So anterior to the mandibular condyle, we have the next process is the coronoid process, and more commonly or clinically important is in the ulna. So the ulna proximally forms a C arch. The higher portion or more the central aspect of the C is the olecranon, and the distal aspect of the C arch is the coronoid process. Again, coronoid process, we have a coronoid process in the mandible, which is anterior to the mandibular condyle, and then on the ulna, the proximal or ulnar head has the olecranon and the coronoid process. Review from a couple of days ago podcast, what is the quadrilateral space syndrome? This is compression of the posterior humeral circumflex artery and axillary nerve in the quadrilateral space, and presentation with atrophy with or without fatty infiltration in the deltoid and teres minor muscles. Again, quadrilateral space. Key thing is compression of the axillary nerve presents with deltoid atrophy and possibly teres minor atrophy. What is the thick fecal luteal cyst? Fecal luteal cysts are bilateral, typically bilateral ovarian cysts that are induced or formed due to high level of beta HCG, which maintains these cysts. Now, again, these are cysts due to high levels of beta HCG. What causes them? High level of beta HCG. What conditions cause high level of beta HCG? Most commonly pregnancy, but also we have polycystic ovarian syndrome. We have induction therapy or ovulation induction therapy, uh, clomiphene intake, all of these factors or uh, molar pregnancy, which has high concentration of beta HCG, will produce thecoluteal cyst. In a normal pregnancy, during the second trimester, the placenta starts producing progesterone and stops producing beta HCG, so thecoluteal cyst would involute. Again, thecoluteal cysts are cysts induced due to high levels of beta-HCG. Well, we said beta-HCG increases those cysts to get bigger, so any condition that has a higher level of beta-HCG would produce the colloteal cyst. In a normal pregnancy, during the second trimester, the placenta produces progesterone and stops 
producing beta-HCG, which causes the fecal luteal cyst to involute. Now, what is the role of beta-HCG? What's going on? So beta-HCG is typically produced by the placenta in the first trimester, and its role is to maintain corpus luteum. Well, corpus luteum produces progesterone, which maintains the pregnancy, so we need progesterone. So the first part of pregnancy, corpus luteum produces progesterone, and the placenta produces beta-HCG, which maintains corpus luteum. But as the placenta starts producing progesterone, which maintains the pregnancy, we don't need corpus luteum anymore and beta-HCG level decline, which involutes fecal luteal cysts. So in, in a question mark, I doubt that they will be bringing pregnancy as a cause for having fecal luteal cyst. Typically, the differential they're trying to get to get at is ovarian epithelial neoplasm that produces beta-HCG, polycystic ovarian syndrome, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, or any cause that produces high levels of beta-HCG. Typically due to beta-HCG, what we see is the ovaries will get very big because it's bilateral because it's a systemic or hormonal response, and they can get up to 12 centimeter or greater. So you'll get both ovaries measuring greater than 12 centimeter. And they're trying to get to a pathology that produces beta-HCG, be it uh, epithelial malignancy, choriocarcinoma in the uterus, uh, or any hyperstimulation syndrome that would cause elevated beta-HCG. Okay, this is the probably the last uh, question in this series or this episode, and it's not a fun question. What's the balanced steady state free procession technique or BSSFP? So this is a bright blood technique in which all three gradients, so frequency encoding gradient, phase encoding gradient, and slice gradient are refocused with each repetition time without the use of spoiler gradient. It's also known as balanced fast field echo or fast imaging employing steady state acquisition fiesta or true fast imaging with steady state precession, true FISP. And this can be f- performed with or without fat suppression. Again, balanced steady state free precession. Again, balanced steady state free precession is a bright blood technique. So the blood will appear bright in it as well as fluid. And it is three gradients that are refocused with each repetition time with no spoiler gradient applied. I will do uh, episodes regarding MRI physics later, but this is just a quick reminder that balanced steady state free procession, both blood and fluid is bright. It's a bright blood technique, and it's called different things based on which manufacturer makes the MRI machine. Again, feel free to uh, reach out to me on or give me any feedback that you guys have, and the goal thing is to help all of us get through this uh, test.